0: late October. Your seasonal choices for movies are now horror or Halloween themed, and the thought of Salem, Massachusetts fills you with dread because of all the traffic bound for haunted happenings. But fear not. Mainly History is here to provide you with a different Salem experience, and one that can still involve some fear. I'm your host, Ian Saxe, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to a special two-part Halloween episode about the surprisingly prominent role Mainers played in North America's largest witch hunt in Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. Of the 19 people executed for witchcraft, it's likely no one disturbed onlookers more than George Burroughs. A minister in Maine, accused by Salem residents who knew him, even though he lived far away on the Maine frontier in the town of Wells. But how could a minister be involved with the devil? And why were so many Mainers among both the accused and the accusers in Salem? Join us for a fascinating and at times macabre story. And before you accuse me of stalling, we'll begin. guest today is Emerson Baker, professor of history at Salem State University. Everyone who has the pleasure to know him knows him as Tad, and so he shall be on our show. Uh, He has training in historical archaeology, as well as extensive experience in museums and public history in York, Berwick, and Saco. Among his publications are two books on early American witchcraft, most recently, A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Witch Trials, and the american experience tad welcome to mainly history
1: ian it's great to be here
0: we are gathered here today to speak about one particular victim of the salem witch trials that would be george burroughs an ordained minister in falmouth maine modern day portland well, uh but technically, first excuse me oh, technically yeah. not
1: ordained oh he's not He's ordained. never ordained oh my he's gosh Harvard, i'm already learning Harvard, things a Harvard graduate who was always a frontier minister who was never formally ordained. And frankly, that's kind of a part of the story. But I apologize oh, for good. interrupting. That's okay. We can get to that.
0: So, <laughs> among other misconceptions, we should get it out of the way that obviously uh we are timing this uh this episode for October and Halloween, not because of any connection between the Salem witch trials and Halloween, but due to crass material interest in attracting more clicks due to the fact that people want witch content for Halloween. As Absolutely. you wanted, you were very interested in. Us making that clear. And yet you, Tad, continue to shamelessly tour the nation every October giving talks like this, don't you?
1: Well, you know, the year Storm of Witchcraft came out in 2015, I gave 29 talks in the month of October. So, but on the other hand, too, is what I do like to do is use it at, at every talk. I do point out there is no connection between witchcraft in the 17th century. Yes, modern day Wicca do, uh, you know, Psalm Hain? October 31st is a high holy holiday for them. But there is no relationship between historical witchcraft and the events of the Salem witch trials. But on the other hand, too, is I, like everyone else, you know, enjoys a good trip to Salem during haunted happenings and taking when my daughters were young, we'd, we'd go there for, uh, you know, did our fried dough and get our good scare and our set of vampire fangs. So oh, I don't okay. see anything wrong with that, as long as we can separate the history from the reality, right?
0: Have you ever been summoned for sort of counter-programming by maybe like some goth kids around Valentine's <laughs> Day where they're like, no, Valentine's Day sucks. So let's talk about the Salem Witch Trials or anything like that. Is there another bump for you besides October?
1: The fall is tends to be the big one, honestly, yeah. uh, now, that, now that you're thinking about that. But now, you, now you're giving me ideas as to how I could really go on tour and like in like you know February and March or something. Ian. So, so thanks. We'll, we'll work on that. Excellent.
0: Before we get to George Burroughs, character that he is, some of our audience members might not be as familiar with the narrative of the Salem witch trials in 1692 and the the, the basic outline of what took place. And so do you perhaps help those folks just just get up to speed here? So
1: in 1692 and 1693, America had by far its largest outbreak of witchcraft in in history in Salem when over the course of of a, a year's worth of trials through several different courts, Uh, over 150 people were, were formally accused of witchcraft. The end result was 19 being executed, one pressed to death, and five more died in prison while awaiting trials. And it really goes off the Richter scale of witchcraft cases in America. There were dozens of witchcraft cases in America before then, but frankly, Salem has about half the cases of witchcraft in American history and executions and is sort of still considered today to be this big sort of blot if you will on american history but i also like to point out that it's all part of a larger pattern where we believe during the kind of the great age of winch hunts in europe and her colonies between roughly 14 50 in the American Revolution. In Europe and her colonies, about 100,000 people were tried for witchcraft and roughly half of them perished, were executed. Um, and so actually by European standards, where as many of, as 1,000 or 2,000 people might die during a prolonged multi-year witch hunt, the 19 people in Salem don't even qualify as a, a minor outbreak really, right? But to us, I think for lots of reasons, it's it's one of these sort of critical turning points, I think even in American history, and so, but something by European standards is kind of like Oh, really? <laughs> that happened there too? Um, right. So anyhow, we we could talk all about that yeah. all the day. But let's let's talk about George because he's fascinating.
0: Well, and final thing about the, the grand scheme of things. I mean, compared to this big early modern trend, Salem happened on the later side. I mean, the, the big peak was a, in the years, my understanding, surrounding 1600 or so, especially in eastern France, western modern day Germany and Switzerland and that area right. where there's yep. just Hunts of, I think, in Bomberg, there were several hundred executions in the span of a couple of years.
1: Right. In in Cologne, between in, in a 10 year period beginning in the mid 1620s, I think that what well, was 2000 people executed, right? Mm. But there are some later ones. I mean, the big outbreak, of course, in England is during the English Civil War, where there, there are like over 100 people are, are executed. And, and as you progress, they, they continue into the 18th century, but they're not as well known. I believe. When I think I mentioned the storm of witchcraft, there are over, I think it's 700 people executed for witchcraft uh, in parts of Eastern Europe in the, in the 18th century. And, and in that sense, too, I'd like to point out, you know, it really is a modern day phenomenon where people are still scapegoated and and persecuted today, usually by lynch mobs in places like South Asia and South Africa, where mob violence really results in in dozens of people being um, executed by informal tribunals, shall we say, lynch mobs to this day. And it is a very big problem right now in parts of South Africa.
0: That is a very good point. So let's talk a bit about George Burroughs, who's our connection for today. Who was George Burroughs?
1: George Burroughs was a fellow raised in, in Massachusetts, in, in Roxbury. He uh, raises a good Puritan. He attends Harvard, graduates class of 1670. Salem witchcraft, future witchcraft judge Samuel Sewell graduates the year after him. So he has sort of a good Puritan Upbringing and lands his first job. Uh, then, as now, getting those first jobs for, for academics, be, be the historians or ministers, can be kind of tough. So he ends up on the rugged frontier as the minister of Falmouth, Maine, a place we all now know as Portland. And uh, sort of the the sort of he becomes like the minister for this very poor frontier settlement, just struggling to exist on the edge of the frontier and. Uh, unfortunately, we'll, we'll soon be caught up in a couple of frontier wars and then also the Salem Witch Trails.
0: Maine at this point was a very, just a handful of towns along the coast between roughly Casco Bay and the New Hampshire border, correct?
1: Right. I mean, it, yeah. before, when Burroughs moves up there, settlements extend, really English settlements extend as far east as as, as Sheepscot. And then right down down to Kittery, uh, and then beyond the the Kennebec on the on the Penobscot River, we have French settlements there as well too, and large Native American settlements throughout the region in the interior, as as I know you know from your research.
0: Okay, so this would have been Burroughs preaching in in Falmouth would have been from the English perspective a, a relatively remote posting, though.
1: Yeah, exactly. You were talking about a, a settlement that probably doesn't have more than. Two or 300 residents living there uh, at, at the time, kind of, a, you know, a, a bit of a backwater, though also a, an emerging port and a place where pretty much every, no one lives more than probably a half or quarter mile away from the ocean or a major river. So it's really kind of a settlement kind of clinging to Casco Bay and, and to the rivers and the harbors, right? And, and where, you know, Native American villages are, are not far away either and are, and are frequent visitors to, to the neighborhood to trade and, and so on.
0: How does Burroughs end up in Salem if he is a Falmouth minister?
1: Well, unfortunately for Maine, we have these interspersed wars in the 17th and 18th century that cause waves of of refugees fleeing the region. The war known as King Philip's War uh, or various other other names starts in southern New England in, in 1675 and spreads to Maine in 1676 where the natives of the region uh, take up arms, though they had previously been peaceful. And within a short order, pretty much all of the settlements in Maine, really north of the Saco River are abandoned, including Falmouth in the summer of 1676. And so Burroughs and all of his family, friends and neighbors become refugees, uh, leaving in many cases with just the clothes on their back. And he ends up, uh, like most of them, down in Massachusetts proper. Now, of course, realize at the time, Falmouth, Maine is a part of Massachusetts. And it's uh, Massachusetts County of York. That's another whole story about how Maine became part of Massachusetts. So they're going down basically to where it is relatively safe, what I would say describe as inside Route 128 today, right? Greater Boston, Salem, and these areas. And they have kind of refugee status. And these. He's there for several years, initially actually living in what is now Salisbury, Massachusetts, where he will eventually become an assistant minister there. So he goes down to Massachusetts, where he has to start, again, try to find a new job because it's unsafe to live back home in Maine.
0: What do we know about Burroughs's personality?
1: So Burroughs is, is an interesting fellow. He is regarded to being kind of like this highly sort of secretive guy. He, we have some descriptions of him. He's actually accused in the witch trials of having supernatural strength, of being able to do things like picking up a whole barrel of molasses by himself or taking one of these long muskets with a six or seven foot long musket and being able to pick it up at arm's length with just his one hand. So sort of small, stocky, tough guy, he actually, you know, is, is maybe a bit of a woodsman and a frontiersman as well, but also, too, sort of known kind of for his, his sudden temper and his controlling waves of his wives. There in the, in the Salem Witch Trials, a lot of the story, his story comes out where people say, yeah, you know, when he lived with us, he seemed to really take offense with his wives and really kind of kept them in line and sort of gave them maybe at least verbally abusing them. There may be even some hints it perhaps what we would now consider to be domestic abuse, right? Um, you mentioned now having, wives,
0: plural. Did one of them die or multiples die?
1: Yeah, he, he, actually, by the, by the time he was accused of witchcraft, he was on wife number three. Now, having, I got to explain. In the 17th century, it, it wasn't at all uncommon for people to to lose their partners. You know, before modern medicine, many people would live to be 80 or 90, but you could also get an illness and, and be gone before you know it. And it was particularly true for women going through the childbearing years, where it was very a very risky endeavor uh, indeed. And we know that Burroughs lost two wives, probably at least one of them through childbirth. And again, it it wasn't at all uncommon for him to be on wife number three, but in Burroughs' case, it it, it would raise suspicion during the Salem witch trials when some of the afflicted girls who were his accusers actually said that they saw the ghosts, the spirits of Burroughs' two deceased wives, and they showed up in bloody winding cloths, that is their burial shrouds. And they basically were saying that he had murdered them. So it sort of added a level of suspicion. And again, not at all uncommon, unfortunately, for poor George or anybody to have lost multiple spouses like this. It was a real tragedy of 17th century life. But in Burroughs' case, I think perhaps if you take the, perhaps the way he treated his wives, his secretive ways, his controlling ways, this may have sort of given rise to a little more thinking about what happened to his wives, particularly, too, when they died up on the frontier. Ian, I think it's important to point out that Maine in the 17th century was considered by the Puritans down in Massachusetts proper to be kind of this howling wilderness, this scary frontier that had Native Americans and French Catholics and wolves and bears and Satan running loose as well, too. And so why would a perfectly good Harvard minister end up there? And it's like, you know, well he's looking for a job. But on the other hand, too, why did he go back? Because after King Philip's war, when Falmouth is resettled, he goes back there. So, hmm, what attracts him to the frontier? This man of mystery. What's going on with George Burroughs, right? So yeah, all kinds of questions there.
0: Ah, Now, while we're on this main connection, how many other Maine refugees were there, as far as we know, in Salem and broader Essex County in 1692 that might have been like an aggravating factor in the Salem witch craze?
1: Yeah, it was a huge problem. And I'm one of a, a number of scholars who have pointed out what I kind of call the, the frontier thesis of the Salem witch trials, where in many ways it was this whole, the outbreak of King William's War, this, this second war that started really in Maine in 1688 and then into 1689. That caused the frontier to begin uh, abandoned a second time that brought another wave of refugees back or, or or back again to to Massachusetts, you need to have public relief for them, they have extended family who have to take them in and feed them and clothe them and find them jobs and really kind of raising taxes and creating all sorts of problems. And there are literally hundreds of these folks, and many of them indeed are around Salem, which is kind of that, that kind of the chief port of Essex County and the chief safe place of refuge down in Massachusetts at this time. And many of these refugees were people who, in the 1680s, had moved up to Falmouth quite deliberately from places like Salem and Salem Village and surrounding towns, and then found themselves back in Massachusetts. And, and many, many of these people involved in one way or another, actually involved in the Salem Witch Trials. And again, Ian, that's a, that's a whole nother show we can do.
0: We should mention some of the more famous Maine connections that Arthur Miller brings up in The Crucible, which is how many Americans get their, their Salem Witch Trials knowledge. In the play slash movie, he has Abigail Williams, a girl named Abigail Williams, supposedly have a love affair with John Proctor from Maine. But as you've pointed out, and if you could elaborate here, Miller mixed up a lot of people and was not a particularly (laughs) great Salem historian.
1: Yeah, no, actually, he conflates, even though he thought he was a good historian, he's really conflates three different characters, because who he's really referring to there is Abigail Hobbs, who definitely was a, a refugee from Maine, who was one of the afflicted girls, who clearly knew George Burroughs. And in fact, she's about 13 or 14 in 1692. And she gets into trouble when she tries to perhaps scare or impress the other kids in the neighborhood where she said, I met old scratch, that is Satan in the woods in Casco Bay, right? When she lived up there. But there's another character conflated in here too. And that is Mary Warren, who actually was the serving girl of John Proctor, who was one of the men accused and executed in Salem in 1692. And meanwhile, right, Abigail Williams was a little like 11-year-old girl who was the niece of Reverend Paris in Salem Village. Who didn't live with the with the Proctors and didn't wasn't from Maine and, and, and frankly was way too young to have any kind of relationship with anybody, right? So this is the thing. You know, I like to say Arthur Miller's a great playwright. Yeah, not so much on the history, right? But certainly, um, at least at least a, a ten or twelve of the afflicted girls like Abigail Hobbs, who are the chief accusers in Salem, who are these kind of you know mid to late teenagers. Who are refugees from the frontier in Maine, or who have ties to the frontier in Maine, who have brothers off fighting there, who are um, orphans or have lost fathers on the main frontier. And certainly these girls are very much in a vulnerable state. And in 1692, when it looks like the French and the Native Americans are going to win this war and maybe even destroy settlements like Salem Village, which wasn't that far from the frontier, it's it's easy to understand how sort of the the paranoia grew and how people became really terrified of what might happen to them, even in a believed safe place like Salem.
0: Were there other Mainers among the accused, along with George Burroughs, that spring uh, to mind. Uh,
1: yeah, ab- absolutely. For example, uh, Sarah Cloyce and her husband Peter had had lived in Wells before they had moved south, and Anne Putitter, who was another refugee from um, Falmouth area, who was executed as well too, and and other folks with main, many other people with Maine ties, like John Alden, who was the Boston merchant, the son of the famous John Alden and Priscilla Mullins who was actually uh, sort of a fur trader and, and um, merchant on the frontier, who was actually illegally trading with Baron St. Castine and the Native Americans during the hmm. war as well, too. So basically, anybody with any ties to Maine were kind of accused. And to just add to that, about half the judges were prominent Maine landowners who had thousands of acres of land and had sawmills that were destroyed in the war. So all told, there's probably 40 or 50 people involved in the Salem Witch Trials that had a direct stake in Maine in one way or another.
0: Okay. But would you not to say that it's a one-to-one theory? But having having main ties might make one more suspect or liable to uh, accusations of you know bad character or, or or suspiciousness among their Massachusetts neighbors.
1: Exactly, and to some okay. degrees, witchcraft. Whenever then or now, we're talking talking about scapegoating, right? Mm-hmm. Difference. What makes what makes someone stand out in a crowd? When I start to have problems like my house being destroyed in a native raid and I have to move to Massachusetts. You know, it's human nature to look to blame other people, right? And all all too often, that means we scapegoat others for they're different. Why are they different? Could it be because of these connections to Maine where we know that Satan lurks and Native Americans live and also the French Canadians and, of course, the Puritans' arch enemies are the Catholics and the Native Americans for political, military, but also spiritual reasons. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, this is a good point. Laura Chmielewski's spice of popery makes these connections about, oh well, Maine's really close to French Canada. So they're flirting there with a bunch of priests and Catholics. And of course, there's there's heretics and pagans. And Mary Beth Norton's book on, In the Devil's Snare uh, is, is really emphasizes these frontier fears uh, as a as an underlying cause. So we should give we should give credit where it's due.
1: Absolutely. Two two excellent books by by excellent historians and and, and good friends. While
0: we're talking about uh, scapegoating and sort of personality types, and so is there any evidence that George Burroughs was targeted because he was found kind of particularly disagreeable by his neighbors? One of the theories, and again, without putting all of our eggs in one basket, one of the theories advanced is that many of the accused were sort of difficult, antisocial people who their neighbors, you know, found to be, you know, particularly unpleasant or, or, or frightening or, or what have you. And this led to their their accusations. So was there something to this with George
1: Burroughs? Well, all I can say is I, I keep on waiting for my neighbors to accuse me of witchcraft, but I won't, I won't <laughs> go into that. But um, right. So Burroughs, all of the ministers um, by 1692, Salem Village was on its its fourth minister in in 20 years. It was a very contentious village for a number of reasons. And again, if you want to understand that, read Boyer and Nissenbaum, Salem Possessed, which really talks about that conflict in Salem Village, which led to, to accusations and and disharmony and as, as as one as one person wrote in a letter to Burroughs complaining about brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor, this kind of like political and religious factional violence, if you will. Certainly Burroughs was cast into the midst of this. When he, he finally gets the job in Salem as a refugee in 1680. And he's only there for about a little less than three years because he too gets dragged into the contention over the minister. And apparently some of these are are, are spiritual matters. Some of these more relate to issues like his salary and who's going to pay it and these sorts of things. And very clearly he, he establishes Bitter friends and bitter enemies, I guess one might say, right? I mean, hmm. there are people. He, he he seems to be kind of one of these lightning rod kind of guys, and particularly in Salem Village, where people either liked him or he didn't. And in in fact, actually, when one of his uh, one of his wives died, he he borrowed money from a member of the Putnam family, and it took him a while to pay him back. So when he finally, in one of his last visits to Salem, he hadn't paid that debt, and the Putnams actually had him clapped in irons by the sheriff for failing to pay the debt. So he certainly had some enemies there. And what's clearly interesting is, is that though, the girls who knew him, who, affli- who accused him, actually really didn't know him. They would have been very little when he had even been minister in the town, because that was nine years earlier. So it's really, it seems fairly clear to me, you know, that as of 1692, George Burroughs was still a well-known character in Salem and clearly reviled by a number of his enemies. And you can sort of imagine the parents grumbling at night about the people they didn't like, including Burroughs and, you know, maybe the, the, the teenage daughter has gone off to bed in the next room, but hearing through the walls, people, you know, complaining about Burroughs being the cause of all their problems and, you know, because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to, I, I really don't ascribe to the fact that people were singled out to get back at them for witchcraft. But I do believe that, especially if you have, you know, you know, some young children, teenagers who are susceptible to to suggestion, even right, you know, right. when they hear their neighbors, uh, if, when they hear their, their family members, their parents happy or unhappy, they listen. And uh, that can be reflected perhaps in their dreams and their, and their hopes and their fears, right? And so that certainly seems to be the way that someone like George Burroughs, who frankly, probably none of these girls who accused him had ever met or seen or could describe ends up being accused of witchcraft in 1692.
0: This is a good point. And I guess it bears emphasis that in the 1690s and and before and after, in New England towns, whether it was in town meetings or, or sort of church government, reaching consensus and suppressing and mediating conflict and aggression was a really... Highly emphasized value, and so you and I both have, have seen this where we look at the sources, for example, of these town meeting books or whatever, where it's very difficult to actually suss out the existence of conflict because usually they don't record evidence of, of dissension, they try and work it out first, um, exactly.
1: And some people say, even that's why they're so litigious, right? Is because they're mm-hmm. they. We'll choose like an official channel, a court to try to settle a complaint. But also, too, I think, you know, there was a lot. If you think about these communities, they were made up of people from different parts of England with different traditions and, frankly, different shades and flavors, even of Puritanism, let let alone, you know, some other other brands of English Protestantism. And they they really did not necessarily always see this was not the peaceable kingdom that some people in many cases that some people would have us believe. And in fact, one of my favorite of these many 17th century New England township studies by Roger Thompson, which is on um, Watertown in the 17th century. And the title is Divided We Stand, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this, this, this so, so, uh, but certainly, yes, the problem is men were supposed to have well ordered families. Um, where they all got along. And while, while yes, it was perfectly acceptable for a husband to use a little bit of physical violence on his wife or his children, or the wife to do so on the children of the servants, excessive uses of force, excessive confrontation and conflict were certainly seen as troubling signs to Puritans who valued a harmony and family values and community really uh, above all else. And if those relationships are not working well, if you're not getting along well with your wife or your neighbor, then again, what is wrong with you? And who might you be in league with and taking advice from, right?
0: Right. Well, two other aspects of Burroughs' person that to I think many of our listeners might make him a surprising person to be accused of witchcraft. And the first is just the fact that he's a man. The stereotype of an early modern witch is uh, overwhelmingly that of a woman. And that, of course, it is true that in English language speaking countries, women made up a majority of the accused, although not the the entirety of it. So let's talk a bit about the role of gender in stereotyping witches. Um, So could we start with then uh, how much extra scrutiny did women undergo by virtue of, of their sex in the early modern period for these, for these witchcraft accusations.
1: So what's interesting is, is, if you look pretty much universally, witchcraft across time or place, and frankly, witchcraft is a kind of a universal society for better or worse, roughly three quarters of the people accused of witchcraft are women. And it's even more of a female crime than that, because of the men, many of them are relatives or defenders of those women who were accused, right? Um, so certainly it is, it is very much sort of of a, 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 a female crime and one reason why many gender historians do study the witch trials. So that's certainly the case, but it's also true that, again, if this comes back to issues of sort of difference and scapegoating, if you had um, an, an unruly disorderly man, someone who stuck out from the crowd, caused problems, seemed to be different, they could just as easily be accused of witchcraft as well. And certainly that is true in Salem, where about a quarter of the of the people accused are Men. And in fact, actually, of the 19 people who were executed, five of them, including Burroughs, are men. And and a sixth man, Giles Corey, of course, is pressed to death. So the accusations and and the executions in Salem just about mirror that the pattern um, elsewhere for the percentage of people who are witches. So certainly tended to be women who were accused as sort of a a female kind of working class crime, if you will. But it also, in this case, too, to me, is that, you know, yes, men were certainly accused. And also, in Salem, interestingly enough, even prominent men, even ministers, we know that there were, in fact, five ministers who were either formally accused or informally cried out upon in the Salem witch trials. Interesting. Yeah, and that's sort of, and and of course, Burroughs is the only one to be formally tried or to be executed. But one thing I like to point out is that I think in many ways people, you know, in some degrees, witchcraft is all about religion, right? And we sort of forget Mm -hmm. that in our sort of social, economic, neighborly sort of interpretations of why people are accused. But it really is ultimately about religion, and I think it sort of suggests uh, the fact that these ministers were accused, and frankly, several dozen members of their family, and including people like Increase Mather's wife, who was the daughter of John Cotton, the mother of Cotton Mather, was accused of witchcraft, right? Many prominent people from these families were accused of witchcraft from leading religious families, and I think it sort of suggests some of the religious tension that was going on in Massachusetts at the time. And particularly, Ian. I know you're going to say, "Well, okay, Ted. Well, why them?" A lot of it, I think, has to do with religious orthodoxy. Mm. Because most of these ministers who are accused, there may be questions about their orthodoxy. Most of them actually are ministers or members of families of ministers who've accepted the halfway covenant. Uh, and 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 if you want, we can we can go down that alley. If so you want. yeah,
0: we're going to need. So we'll <laughs> we'll bracket the halfway covenant. But so you're saying so ministers who divert from this sort of general orthodoxy of Puritanism in the late 17th century are, are more suspect.
1: That is absolutely true. And, particu- and so here Burroughs is perhaps Exhibit A, because yes, while he went to Harvard, uh, it becomes clear in the testimony in Salem that people have questions about his religious orthodoxy. And in fact, some people think he is, God forbid, a Baptist. Now, again, to us, the idea that Puritans were afraid of Baptists and Quakers, another bogeyman of of the puritans is laughable because what what could be more american and more mild mannered than quakers and baptists right people who believe kind of in, you know kind of egalitarian and status and everything baptists though were were one of the dissenting faiths that by 1692 they were they were allowed to worship and they were allowed freedom of religion and and, and to be freemen of the colony that is uh, voters of the colony but they were really people worried about them because baptists believe that only those people who were adults can be baptized into the church. And they really have to do so after, after uh, having that personal conversion experience uh, with, with, with God. Now, the problem, of course, with that is, well, what happens about the poor baby who isn't baptized and dies a year later? They're destined for hell. A lot of people had trouble with that. So people think, you know, Burroughs might be one of these people that they consider to be dangerous. Why is that? Well, interesting thing. Burroughs, was, as we mentioned, was never formally ordained. And you, to be baptized, it can only be done by an ordained minister. And so, uh. when, Bur- Aha. so when Burroughs came back to Massachusetts proper after the abandonment of uh, of, of the main frontier in 1690 and 1691, he uh, they pointed out and said, hey, George, why is it your younger children had never been baptized? And he said, Oh well, you know, up in Man on the frontier, I wasn't, uh, you know, I could, I couldn't do, th- I couldn't, or- I wasn't ordained, I couldn't baptize them, so they never got baptized. They're like, but you and your family have attended worship a number of times in Charlestown in Boston. Couldn't they have been baptized then? Crickets for an answer to that one, right? So, ah, why is that? And also, too, why did he stay up on the frontier where there are these pockets of Baptists and Quakers? So, uh... you know, telltale, telltale signs that again. He may not have been an or, the orthodox Puritan that we would like to think of our upstanding Harvard graduates, class of 1670.
0: Moving from the Burroughs' being a, a minister, and, and if we could go back to, again, this the sort of a profile of, of the male witch. And yeah. so, well, first of all, just as you mentioned with uh, various types of women accused, the sort of working class profile, I mean, I think other scholars have pointed out women who were somehow either disorderly themselves or threats to the standing social order, whether by being single and proudly so and somehow sustaining themselves, uh, also midwives who presided over a lot of unfortunate miscarriages and deaths and childbirths just by virtue of it being the 17th century. So if that's the profile of the female witch... What is the profile of the male witch, other than the fact that it might be somebody in the family of an accused woman? Are there any other, you know, for drawing a sketch for the early modern, for the early modern witch hunters? What kind of men do they often pick up?
1: There's certainly one one issue too, maybe may issues of sexuality. We do know, like women, actually, you know, you talk about unmarried. Uh, some of the men accused of witchcraft in New England in the 17th century are fellows who never marry, um, who again seem to have. Odd sort of suspicious ways, and frankly, in Massachusetts, where everyone married and had had children and families, to just to not be married to be you know so would seem to sort of single you out. But I think there's a um, to me with with, with Burrows and the other men who were accused in 1692, the, the factor that I frankly keep on coming back to is issues of perhaps of of, of, of family violence, right? Of domestic abuse are certainly elements. Again, Burroughs is seen very much as a controlling wife, uh, controlling his wife uh, more so than he should. He's also very mysterious. He actually controls his wives in some cases by claiming to have what we would call preternatural knowledge, knowledge that he's not supposed to have. For example, at one point, he he uh, met up with one of his wives and his and his brother-in-law when they were walking back to the house from blueberry picking. And um, they lost George, but he meets him at the doorway, he somehow got into the house ahead of them, even though he's supposed to be behind them. And he said, I heard you and I know what you were saying about me. And they're like, how did you know that? I said, my God speaks to me and tells me these things, right? Well, you know what? God doesn't really work in those ways. So there's kind of like, wow. But again, very kind of controlling kind of ways too. But if you look at some of the other people who were accused in 1692, John Proctor, John Willard, Samuel Wardwell, George Jacobs, all of these men are accused by the afflicted girls. They're saying that they're specters, that is their spirits, their ghosts had abused these girls in some way. And again, it was okay for a master who had a serving girl in the house to show restrained violence. If if the girl is not doing her job, then we must show her how it is done. And unfortunately, right? I mean, spare the rod, spoil the child. But these seem to be excessive violence or suggestions of that. So for example, George Jacobs was a crippled uh, 80-year-old man who walked with two canes. And his serving girl Mary Churchill or Churchwell, who, by the way, yes, was a war refugee from Saco, Maine, accused the specter of her master of beating her with his canes, with his crutches, right? And Or take, you know, John Proctor, Mary Warren accuses his specter of beating her and threatening to basically to burn out Satan and her lies with a hot poker. John Willard, whose wife and, and, and in-laws testify that he had literally beaten his wife to within an inch of her life. This wasn't a specter. It was him, right? And this was a, this was a, a scary thing. Or the, to me, the more, maybe the, the more kind of icky one, and this is, again, where I hate, I hate to say this, but Miller might have been writing the crucible, even though it was Mary Warren. Again, Abigail Williams was a little girl and, and wasn't involved in any sexual liaisons with anybody. Mary Warren was a 19 or 20-year-old girl uh, in John Proctor's household. Where John again was on wife number three, and when he was about sixty, and she was pregnant actually at the time, and clearly maybe some domestic abuse there. Which again, you know, these these are young vulnerable girls; they have no way to get back, they have no place in society. Many of them are war refugees who are impoverished, but they can get back through these accusations. But here's the interesting, the scary one to me, the really makes you think. In one case, Mary Warren describes John Proctor's specter, her spirit, as approaching her, and she is sitting. Uh, She's doing some activity. I can't remember. She may be knitting or something. But Proctor's specter, while she's sitting, approaches her, walks up to her, and she pulls her specter and puts him on her lap. This seems unseemly behavior for a 60-year-old Puritan gentleman with a pregnant wife, right? And again, it's just the specter doing this, she says, Mm. but to what degree is she saying that? Because it would really, no one would believe her except the fact if she said that, you know, John sort of has a thing for me or something like that, right? So certainly there, there seems to be issues of domestic violence. There, I think, again, you have to read between lines really carefully, but I think there may even even some issues of, of sexual violence there too, uh, that certainly put people at, at risk of that, as well as some of these other questions of orthodoxy. Again, simply okay. just living on the frontier and things like that. So, again, a lot of lot of similar kinds of reasons with men as women, including I think some kind of issues of sexuality and and intentions over that as well.
0: It's interesting you that comes back to the sense of disorderly men, and they're not being good men by the standards of the 17th century as a sort of patriarch who's in control of their households as well as themselves. And this reminds me very much of some of the work on trials for same-sex acts. In England at this time, there's the famous trial of the Earl of Castlehaven in the 1630s. And I know this is going to be a deep cut uh, for, for some of the audience here, but long story short... Mervyn Touche, the second Earl of Castlehaven, was publicly accused in in the 1630s. So this is somebody who's He's a peer. He's a lord. He's a real big deal in England. And he's accused of raping his wife, but also engaging in various acts of sodomy with male servants. Yeah. And he was ultimately executed. And scholars have convincingly argued that his real crime was less engaging in sex acts with other men and more that he was presiding over this disorderly house where he was not in control of things the way he should be. And then because of that, yes, there were these other crimes. And so same-sex acts were, uh, to put it mildly, frowned upon. But usually when, certainly in the England and its colonies, when these acts were punished, it was just as often as going along with other things than singling out somebody who gets caught in a same-sex act or accused of it by itself in isolation. Um, and, and
1: you know, and in and in Salem, we don't really see any of that, but there are some again some other cases in early New England and early Massachusetts. And there is there's one fellow who John G writes about in particular, who was accused of witchcraft on multiple occasions, who really kind of spent way too much time around the barns and the stables and seemed to have been hmm. way too close. To one of the horses, for right and and again, ah. uh, and you know and, and as as you know, um, you know like through Richard Richard Godbeer's work and others, the idea of homosexuality per se did not really exist in the 17th century, but certainly we do know that things like like sodomy and and, and buggery with animals did take place. And uh, again, when caught, was punished most severely, and anybody who was even sort of looked at in those ways would again, be immediately be up, certainly, certainly up for for suspicion.
0: Okay. So staying just for a moment, if we're mentioning as as you did that, so most of the accused were for women, but uh, there were some men. We should point out the exception. Brian Levack has this great survey, the witch hunt in early modern Europe. And he's pointed out that in Scandinavia and in Eastern Europe, like Russia, a majority of the accused were men. But these trials were, by European standards, kind of unusual in that they were they were pretty late. They were in the 18th century, and they yeah. tended to involve men who were accused of consorting with the devil or engaging in, in wizardry, which can also speak to just different local folk beliefs about the way the devil and witchcraft worked, yeah, coming from a yeah, different right. cultural inheritance.
1: But having said that too, and I, and I love Levack. I, I teach with it, it's a brilliant book, but the problem too is that it, it was early on, right? And in fact, actually, guess what? In the past like five years or so, there've been some more recent books on that, which really suggest that once you study more Russian witchcraft cases, for example, yeah, they pretty much fit the pattern. And somehow the ones they first found tended to be more men. So, oh. and in fact, there's a really good book and I can't remember the author, but it's called, we get, get back to our sexuality. How's this for a title? The title of the book is called In the Bathhouse at Midnight, which, oh, wow, which again is apparently where witches tended, to, covens tended to gather in Russia in like the 17th and 18th century. But you're right again there too in Eastern Europe, it tends to be more of an 18th century phenomenon. But again, the, the, the you know those numbers of I think there probably still are maybe more men in Russia than in some other places, mm-hmm. and it does suggest different patterns of things. I think actually too, originally like amongst the laps, like in Sweden too. But also too, um, those numbers have come down some too. So again, what's amazing is there are literally, I could point to. 20 or 30 really amazing books written on witchcraft over the past couple of decades in different parts of Europe, in different parts of, of, of America, different cases. And a matter of fact, there's a, a really good book coming out next year on this really interesting case in, in western Massachusetts that I'm really looking forward to reading. So the, what's amazing to me is that this is, this is an ongoing story and as you know as this, this evidence of who's accused points out with you know men versus women, we're constantly assessing new information as it comes to light. so it's mm. it's a really interesting thing to study. Yeah,
0: well, let's follow George Burroughs's unhappy fate after his uh, ac- the accusations. So he was arrested in colonial Massachusetts. Who does the arresting? There's no regular police force. So what happens here?
1: Well, you do have a sheriff. You know, Uh, Um, just like, just like, you know, we think of the sheriff of Nottingham, the Mm -hmm. the Shire Reeve, the Reeve of the Shire. Mm -hmm. We we do, we do have sheriffs and we do have constables, um, the the deputies of the sheriff. And they are the, the, when you, when someone comes into a, to a judge and swears out a complaint against someone for witchcraft, the sheriff or his, or his duly uh, delegated uh, deputies or constables will go fetch the person and place them under arrest, lock them up in the, uh, if, if there's a local prison as there is in Salem until they, until they stand trial. But in in Burroughs' case, of course, when he's accused, as I know you know, he actually is in Maine. And he, at the time, is minister in Wells, Maine. He had managed to escape the destruction of Falmouth in 1690. At the time, he probably had moved a couple years earlier to, to Scarborough. But even then, after that whole area of Maine was abandoned, and he had managed to, again, isn't that convenient that he escaped death both during King Philip's War and King William's War? Who did he happen to know up there in Maine that kept him safe? Uh, so, he, all ah, too convenient.
0: If he was it, innocent, he'd be dead by now.
1: And all and all I can think of is, you know, we keep on thinking of church ladies Dana Carvey saying like, yeah. could it be yeah. Satan? <laughs> um, and so he was minister in Wells, but in 1692 they actually sent out a warrant for him, and they let the sheriff actually in Portsmouth know that well that he was to be arrested, and um, he and his folks went up and you know made, saw to his arrest, and then brought him back to Massachusetts for trial. I should point out here that some people like to think that Witch Trot Road in South Berwick is named after George Burrows in some ways, being a witch and trotting down the road, but frankly no they would have taken the coastal route because in 1692 in the middle of the war no one wants to be way into the interior in wells in south berwick where you're likely to be attacked and and actually witchdraught road is probably kind of a a corruption of newichuanic road which is the native name for south berwick in the 17th century but be that as it may
0: i'm surprised they didn't take the water route
1: they would have probably taken the water uh they actually only to cross the Piscataqua. But they actually, oh. uh, yeah, horse horseback were on foot and didn't sail up to get him, believe it or not. But it, you're right, it would have been faster. Okay. Anyhow, he is tried in the summer of, of 1692. And he does have some supporters, but again, the by this time, this is like the third round of trials. Everybody who is accused, it's a pattern. They're accused, they plead not guilty, they're tried. They're convicted sentenced to death and executed and this is exactly what happens to burrows like now, can you else.
0: elaborate you said he was <laughs> accused of having superhuman strength balancing the the heavy musket on one finger lifting yes. up a barrel of molasses what else was he accused Pre- of doing Pre-
1: preternatural knowledge as well okay. Okay. right of, of knowing events you shouldn't have of again of, of murdering his wives, uh, presumably through witchcraft as well, okay. right? Because of course, witchcraft, of course, is a capital crime in its own right, but in this case, using witchcraft to, to murder people. And then also too, the standard accusation in Salem by the afflicted girls is, is that his specter, that is his spirit or his ghost, afflicted me. And this hmm. is it's called spectral evidence, and it's something that is used in Salem in particular, and pretty much everybody who was accused, the leading accusation is spectral evidence. And that Which is- Which
0: is very unusual, For the English legal system, we should point out.
1: There are so many anomalies in Salem to the English legal system, but this is one because normally, and under any English court of law, there's only two ways to convict someone of witchcraft. Now, this is not a Monty Python kind of like witch trial. Normally, it's, you must have two eyewitnesses who say they saw you commit an act of black magic. And I think, Ian, since hopefully you and I can agree that black malfeasant magic, where you get your power from Satan, usually through sexual relationships, with said Satan um, is really not real. It's hard to find two people to swear an oath before God that they saw this happen, right? So the other way that you convict people of witchcraft is by confession. Well, why would you confess? Well, can't they, (laughs)
0: wait, I'm confused. I thought if somebody also saw, like they actually view... The bad thing happen where they go like, "Oh, George Burrow, he gave the stink eye to my pig, and then, <laughs> yes. then, then my pig had a seizure and died." Like there right. was that kind of stuff, right? The just disc- well, acts of maleficarum, as they called it. Yes,
1: yes, that would that would get you in trouble. But again, you would have to sort of have someone testifying that you know George Burrow's cursed me or cursed my pig, and then it died. Mm-hmm. Um, and and two people testifying to that, or the better way, which frankly is to have someone confess. And that is, that is actually the way traditionally in English courts, how people were executed for witchcraft was after confession. Now I know you're going to say- well oh, why I would was you-
0: going to say my favorite <laughs> accusation in early modern England, there was apparently a teenage boy who testified against an older woman who cursed him after he farted in her presence. Yeah. And she got mad at him and said like curse you boy and put like some kind of a hex on him right uh, and then this poor kid had to testify that like i don't know he got acne or something bad happened to him and so this right and, this, and this that's and that and that's that up.
1: that could be an act of black magic but sometimes people would actually confess because what we would call <clears throat> mild judicial torture was legal and is a part of this system. Um, in England, judicial torture in, was allowed? In, and in Salem, it actually happened. Really? And it was allowed. Yeah. John Proctor com- complains that his son and a couple of other boys are being tied neck and heels. And what that means is you literally tie their neck to their heels, then you hold them by their belt upside down with their head down, and you hold them there until blood gushes out of their noses. And again, like this is, it won't kill you, but at the time it's happening, you're not so sure of that, right? And it Mm -hmm. may loosen up your tongue. And frankly, it's kind of the 17th century equivalent of waterboarding, right? So, but having said that in Salem, all of a sudden this idea of spectral evidence gets conflated and it's very risky stuff. And even the ministers kind of go like, you can't rely on this stuff too much because, and again, to us, it's like, right. The specter, which is only visible to the accuser. Oh, 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 stop. George George Burroughs is choking me. (laughs) The specter. It's like, no one can even see that. What are you talking about? You're in the middle of the court. It's just you. So we're saying like, this is crazy, right? Someone's making this up. Well, no. In the 17th century, witches produced specters. They got their power from Satan who could produce specters. People accepted that. The issue was how reliable is this? Because you know what? You say that's the specter of George Burroughs that is strangling you. But how do you know that? Because Satan is the great trickster. And many people believed that if your soul was pure, your soul could not be used to harm somebody. So in this case, these people said like, right, it's clearly Burroughs specter and because he's corrupt and his soul is corrupt. So therefore he's a witch. But other people said, No, that's not true. Satan is the great trickster. He can use anybody's soul, you know, because again, that's like a twofer, right? Mm -hmm. Because you get George Burroughs executed for witchcraft, and you get someone else to be blamed for it, and you get to harm a bunch of people. So Burroughs is accused on these standard counts as well, which again, in other trials in New England, aside from Salem, are given very, very little account, because... It's not the kind of evidence that an English court would use like, you know, that young man testifying uh, about about something the witch did to him. And And this was
0: due to to be clear, Massachusetts was waiting for a new charter. So they were in legal limbo. (laughs) But then wasn't it also under pressure of the number of accusations made this special court willing to dispense with the usual restraints? sort of like just an emergency set of protocols to deal with what was clearly a rising problem, right? Right,
1: I I mean, I, I call my book a storm of witchcraft because there's no single cause or explanation for what happened. There are so many things wrong in the colony, the horrible war on the frontier, people's declining spirituality, the arrival of a new governor with a new charter and a new form of government, factionalism in Salem, factionalism in Massachusetts, all contribute To these outbreaks, and particularly too, it does take the governor to create the special court, the court of Oyer and Terminer, to hear these cases. You know, still Ian, this was English justice. And many of these judges had been involved in witchcraft cases before, sitting as judges, as recently as a couple years earlier, and normally they found people not guilty by this point. So clearly something was going on in 1692 to turn these judges into hanging judges. And I think the big problem was all of these problems hanging over the colony, convinced them that they already knew that Satan was in their midst. And in this case, their job, quite rightly, as you suggest, is is to round up the witches and see to their execution to save the colony. Because ironically, it was past the point where the ministers could save the colony. And instead, it's left up to a bunch of judges. Four of them had been to Harvard at one time or another, and in theory would have been trained to be ministers, but at some point had become merchants instead. And we should clarify... (laughs)
0: The ministers were not the judges. And so some people, I I personally get, you know, my pedantic historian in me gets really annoyed when people will say like, well, it (laughs) was those narrow-minded Puritan ministers that railroaded all these people. No, the ministers were not directly involved in judging the trials. And if we look at even in early modern Europe, the Catholic church was inquisition and religious courts. We're less likely to execute people for witchcraft than the secular courts in Europe. And so, when we're like chalking up what is the cause of these various executions and everything else, it is really unfair to just go ahead and blame it all on a particular clergy.
1: Correct. And the, the ministers were there in some cases trying to coax confessions out of people, but this is, there were no church courts in England or in New England, these are regular civil courts of jurisdiction with the regular justices. These men are members of the Puritan church You know, Massachusetts is not a theocracy, right? Right. Uh, This, this is, and they're not using sort of religious rules and laws and and evidence by any stretch of imagination. And, and by the way, the ultimate symbol of that is if you were accused and convicted of of witchcraft in an ecclesiastical court, that's essentially that is really the crime of heresy, and the, the punishment, of course, is to be burnt at the stake. In England, they do not burn people at the stake because it is the civil crime of witchcraft. It is a capital crime, but you are hanged you were not burnt to the stake. I mean, I'm not sure if that makes you feel any better as, as, <laughs> as, as you as, as you feel the noose over your neck, but it's a very different calling. And But the point is absolutely right, that the ministers played a supporting role at best. And in many cases, people like Cotton Mather, who's been in some ways otherwise vilified as being a supporter of the trials, was known for writing letters to the judges, kind of going like... Eh, you know this spectral evidence stuff. I wouldn't rely on it too much. But then, when push comes to shove, they defer to the judges as being the leaders of society and sort of saying, "But your honors know best," and continue on. We're sure that you'll reach the right decision. But what they should have said is, "The right decision is not to use spectral evidence." And in fact, no more executions take place after Governor Phipps, another good Maine boy who was That's raised right. in Woolwich, Maine, when he brings the court to an end uh, and. When the new trials start up in in January, under the first hearing of what is now the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, what was then called the Superior Court of Judicature, their first cases are to get rid of this backlog of cases in the Salem witch trials. And the new rules that Phipps instructs on them is you're no longer going to accept spectral evidence. And once they do that, it's almost impossible to convict. And the only people who are convicted are three people who sort of think they know the rules, which is, if I confess, I'll live. And so they're convicted after they confess. But even in those cases, Phipps pardons them and says, yeah, no, you're not guilty. Go
0: mm-hmm. home. What some people might wonder is because the English in Massachusetts did have jury trials yes. at this point. And so why in this case, was it not a jury of, of freemen that is serving in, in Salem and instead this special panel of judges? Well,
1: well actually, it's both. OK, so in fact, again, this was, these weren't kangaroo courts. And in many ways... The way the courts ran in 1692 was a bit odd, but it was it was English justice that we would kind of recognize. Mm. And the first, you know, you you are arrested, and you 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 do actually then uh, then go before a grand jury, who determines if there is enough evidence to hold you over on the charges, and it is a trial by jury. There is a panel of nine judges, but there is a jury that reaches the verdict, and it is the judge's job at the time. There are no Actually, it's technically it's illegal to be like a defense attorney in Massachusetts until the early 18th century. So you know, insert here standard lawyer jokes. Um, <laughs> but but in fact, actually, what the judges served as, and no nor were they prosecuting attorneys. There was a crown attorney, one man who kind of organized the cases and collected the depositions and decided who to try first. But there was no prosecuting attorney or defense attorney. And in fact, the panel of judges, in that sense, served as the arbiters of the truth, and they would ask questions both as if prosecutor and defending attorney to try to ferret out the truth, to see that justice was served and that the innocent were saved and that the defendants were guilty. And, and then the jury would decide their fate. Now, the problem is, again, in Salem, this court that normally doesn't convict people of witchcraft has gone askew because of the, the circumstances, the dire strait the colony found itself in where it was fighting for its life. And on the first day, even of the first pre-trial hearings, the question that Judge Haythorne poses to Sarah Good, who's one of the first three accused to face questioning is like, um, how long have you harmed these girls? Essentially, you know, how have you done this? How long have you been in league in sa- with Satan? And why oh, have you not done good. this? And <laughs> in which case, they might as well then say, and, and by the way, Mrs. Good, when did you stop beating your husband, right? Right? So so again, they're, for reasons that you would not normally see in English justice in the 17th century, these impartial arbiters of justice have been spooked into believing that, that the Satan is in their midst. And I will add, one reason these fellows are doing this is because judges like Corwin have lost multi-million dollar investments speculating in main lands and main sawmills that have literally gone up in smoke as the Native Americans burned it down. Not only are these guys judges, they're also the members of the, of the general court. They're basically the governor's council. So today they would be state senators. They would be superior court judges. Oh, and by the way, most of them were militia officers as well. So- They're responsible for the war going badly on the frontier, including one of the judges is Wade Winthrop, the commander in chief of the army. So these are men who are in some ways responsible for the failures of the government and the army and the economy, because it's also a horrible economy. Right. Um, And they're looking for someone to blame other than themselves. So Uh. it tends to make them, you know, it's so much easier to try to blame someone else than to look inside and to scapegoat someone. And, you know, those people with those ties to the frontier in Maine are all the more susceptible, Ian.
0: Ah. Uh. This concludes part one. Join us for the final portion of our Halloween special, as we witness the execution of George Burroughs. View the burial of the condemned, the legacy of his death, and his memory. That's right here on Mainly History. <laughs>